0: Reflections. Shaping the Catholic imagery. <clears throat> the work of Fanny Lawson, five the reflectors of another sculptor's daughter. All art and imagery shapes our experience of the world, whether religious or secular. Being brought up as a Catholic, Catholic childhood that has shaped my life and it's shaped my work. It continues to do so even though I don't consider myself belong to the Catholic Church anymore. It's important, though, that we understand the difference between fine art, decorative art, and commercial decoration. There is a very big difference. The last time Fenwick and I gave a lecture at the Centre for Catholic Studies conference, I heard great intakes of breath when he challenged commercial art. I think it'll be helpful given the content of the the lecture to explain exactly what he meant. I have this small owl lady. I've had it for many years now. She sits on a shelf in my living room, next to a teacup, two delicate glasses inherited from my grandparents. Hanukkah Menorah and three elephants. Comfortable, nostalgic, sentimental. <coughs> On the other side of my fireplace, I have this. A head of a mother and baby from Friendly Sculpture, Ch- Cry for Justice. You may have seen this head in the corridor, in one of the corridors here. The head from one of the tall pieces. There is no comfort. There's no nostalgia. It's not sentimental. It challenges me every day. Some days I can barely I can barely um, look at it and I have to avoid it. it. It hurts me. On other days, the sun casts its light through my window and it accentuates the mark-making, and it demands that I engage. Hidden at the back, and if you go down the corridor, you'll be able to see it for yourselves. Hidden down the back is a small baby's head. I sometimes tap that head with the palm of my hand, reflecting, remembering, or maybe seeking guidance or solace. The difference between this beautiful little Our Lady on the shelf and the cry for justice is that it's decorative. I can't put elephants beside here, beside this book. book. Wouldn't work. This is fine art. Fenwick's work is universal. For most of his work in life, he's used the narrative and the metaphors of Christianity. Cry for justice is one of the stations of the cross but it is equally secular. It is protest. Fine art has a particular criteria. It combines intellectual communication, the narrative, with the language of sculpture that forms the objectness of the object. I would argue that good fine art also includes an emotional communication how that arrives is a bit of a mystery, really. Criterion one, the subject matter, the intended communication of Fenwick's work always transcends time and denomination. We know what he is saying. You feel hurt when you look at it. You don't have to see that it's pretty. That's not the intention. She brings me comfort, she doesn't. Criteria 2. His sculptural image conveys the communication. Fenwick's language is unique and is actually the first of its kind historically. His language is contemporary. It can only be achieved with the cutting action of power tools. In which other era would you see um, a chainsaw cut replicated in bronze? not there. Criteria three. His works are so powerful that they have a biological effect. An emotional effect. Somehow they tap deep into the human condition. That is the mystery. Even he doesn't know how and when it arrives, but it is there. While there absolutely is for decoration and for the decorative arts. That's not what I'm saying. There is a necessity also for art that communicates with our inner self, not just portraiture, not just the mirror image of something or someone. We might admire beauty or be fascinated by technique, but being seduced by that switches off our mind to our inner self. The technique in fact can be so overbearing that the intended communication is lost and it just becomes the objectness of the object we can say wow you know that's amazing how did they do that well that's really clever some elements might be recognizable referring to another time frame or another artist but you see we're responding in an intellectual manner reasoned rational and we bypass the biological and emotional response mechanisms. Fenix sculpture does tap deep inside our minds and our bodies, and makes us question who we are, why we are, how we respond to others. He challenges the way we respond to the world. His life, nineteen ninety six. Afternoon. Hidden life shaping the Catholic imagery. A family friend called Dennis Blackledge, Father Dennis Blackledge, was concerned that the Roman Catholic liturgy, as it stood and still stands, did not address the fundamental trauma of mothers who had lost a baby, either pre- or postnatal, in whatever the circumstance. Experiencing the grief of mothers on a very regular basis, Dennis needed to acknowledge the trauma that they felt. Knowing that Fennec had a deep interest in the mother and child theme, he asked them to produce a sculpture for this purpose. Well, that was a great challenge. Fennec's work always contains authenticity of experience, and we're talking about losing a baby, a mother, well, that's from Fennec. So in this instance, he had to struggle to find a personal parallel. Another challenge was the subject matter had never, ever before been depicted. There were no historic references. When he did the Pieta, there were historic references. This time, this was just a concept, an idea. It took three very perplexing years before he could put chisel to wood. During this time he recalled the grief of his parents when his brother died in early childhood. Then he went on a journey, both physical and emotional. My mother and I walked with him when, when he asked us to, but much of the time he was spent in his own head. Parish burial records. They took days to locate, and days to go through. And every one we looked at brought back memories of childhood, of grief, of the loss of his friends and his relatives every time he saw a name, That sadness returned. We trundled through the old graveyard in Crag with hiking boots on, trying to find exactly where little George was buried success we never really did find him. We have some suspicion as to which grave he may be in, but not complete success. My mum and I sat with him. We sat with his sadness when he fell into this deep grief and depression. So the process of finding that parallel was exceedingly traumatic. Coming out of it, he realized that our little George lived on in the hearts and minds of the family. He's not here physically, but we all know him. He is a hidden life within our family structure. You see, these pieces, these great pieces, do not arrive easily. You can't just order them on next day delivery from Amazon. They're born of the deepest struggle. One could look at it in this way. You fancy having, say, a particular plant in your garden. You buy the seed. You plant the seed. It needs the right conditions to germinate. It needs the right temperature to grow. It needs to be watered and sometimes freed from pests. Despite all of the care and attention that you will see that little plant. Sometimes it dwindles and dies. Sometimes they grow into the most beautiful flower. Commercial art, however, is born on a conveyor belt. That's the difference. You can't get past that. So anyway, the long, hard journey produced there is better the narrative, criteria one fulfilled. Hidden life was to become an aid for the parent Not just to see a loss, but to communicate remembrance. To communicate the child being received back by Gaia, the ancestral mother. With the intended communication settled in his mind, he then began yet, yet again on another journey, criteria two. Which type of wood? Which tree? How to carve it? With what? It was horrendous, really. He walked around riverbanks, eyeing up unsuspecting trees. <laughs> in and out of wood yards, and nobody knew quite why he was there. He asked friends and the estates of the university and the cathedral, until he found one that would be suitable. And he found this elm tree on the riverbank in Durham, where he lived. And then he, he had permission to have it put down, of course. He didn't just come in the night, actually. Like what you may have done in
1: the past. <laughs> you could now
0: start carving using the language of sculpture. Always aware that the mark making must echo the subject matter, not hinder it. Questioning every last little mark will this hinder the communication? How can I express this with my mark making? How will you be able to read it? Are there synonyms? in a sense, for the mark-making. Which what which and what do I do? He couldn't be overt and sentimental as it would expose the mother to her grief. He knew this as he'd experienced it before. Sentimentality is very, very easy to slip into, and exceedingly hard to get out of. Life often brings those teachings. The next slides will explain how funny reach this understanding. This is one of the weeping women. If you're not familiar with the sculpture, uh, the bronze is actually here in the chapel in Usher College. Basically because nobody else wanted her. The weeping women have tears streaming down their face. Thematically, it illustrates, do not weep for me, daughters of Jerusalem, Weep for yourselves and for your children. The language of sculpture echoes the theme. This is the Pieta in Durham Cathedral, the face of the Pieta. And you may not know that this sculpture had the same hard tears. Of course, thematically, it's the Pieta, it's pity. Why wouldn't it have tears? You would think that that would be one of the sculptural, one of the pieces of sculptural language that you would use in the term pity. So, how has it not got tears anymore? Well, the piece was in the studio, and my parents had a phone call from some friends who asked if they might come and visit and they wanted to spend a little time with the Pieta. They were grieving the recent loss of their child, and they needed solace. Of course they could come, of course they could. <coughs> then, in almost an afterthought, Fennig realised that the hard tears on the Pieta would be too explicit in the circumstances. That would upset rather than comfort. He couldn't expose his friends to that sort of grief. So he went into the studio and he cut the tears off of the face before they arrived that afternoon. He wanted to offer hope rather than desolation. And the formal language of the sculpture had to echo that meaning. So time and circumstance do teach and We draw upon those experiences and we apply our learning to uh, later work and in this case, in life. So with this experience, and click twice, it says. So, with that experience in mind, the visual language of hidden life is stillness, <clears throat> it is peace, it is gentleness. It has an inner emotion, not overtly expressed like the living woman. The head of the child is child, just a suggestion. It has no physiognomy that would upset a mother, that would make a mother face her grief. Had it been literal, that would have communicated total loss, rather than continuing to live in the mother's heart and mind, in eternal beauty. The hands are literal. They are the hands of the ancestral mother. They receive, they cradle, they protect. So Hidden Life is um, in the North exits St. Wilfrid's and Preston, it's used by women of all or no denomination on a daily basis, to the extent that all of the oil has been rubbed out of the hands and the head. When my husband first brought this photograph home, I went, oh, no, not again, somebody's painted it. Because that's happened, we do have pieces that people decide to paint, or they decide to take the paint off, as in the Leeds Washington. You wouldn't do it to a Van Gogh, would you really? So, all um, of oh, this here is where the oils just come out, and it just shows how much it's used. So, is this fine art? It is the authenticity of a shared experience combined with the sculptural language to communicate the intended theme, hope, rather than negativity. You know, I could continue in this vein. I could talk to you about the way which Felix Sculptures shaped Catholic imagery, contemporary imagery, and I could present you with a catalogue of examples, but the very fact that you are all here means that you have an understanding of Fennec's work. The sculpture speaks for itself. The sculpture speaks for everyone that encounters it. You know, though, it doesn't doesn't speak for my dad. It doesn't speak for us. So, I'm gonna give you a brief outline as to how working within the confines that he has chosen to work in, we mustn't forget that, he chose this. I'm going to give you an outline of how that shaped my dad? He's 35. And the story of his pain and rejection needs to be told. Coventry Christ, 1957. Rejection started then, and it hasn't diminished since. It's got worse. When he was at the Royal College of Art in London. The city was a wonder to this young man from the northeast mining village. came from Crackhead. My grandparents were miners. And influences of the city abandoned. He'd been to Westminster Abbey and he was really impressed um, by the early English carvings there. And in his own words, he thought, wow, I'd like to have a go at that. So he did. He referenced the rib structure, which the early English used as a metaphor for suffering. He learned the technique of beating cock onto the wood, and he used his high as a metaphor for resurrection. The architect, Basil Spence, was a frequent visitor to the college at the time. He was working on Coventry Cathedral, and he commissioned John Piper and some others um, who were at the Royal College to do the windows and some sculpture there. He saw this risen Christ, and he was really wowed by it. He commissioned Bennett to carve it as an 18-foot figure for the front elevation uh, above the entrance to the cathedral. So then it was taken to the chapter for approval. The chapter rejected it. It was seen to be too provocative. Spence was told that he was making an Anglican cathedral, too Catholic. Fenwick even remembers Spence being very upset when he broke the news. He also remembers that Spence told him almost in tears that the chapter had also challenged him about Jacob Epstein because he was a Jew. He apologised profusely. It was also deemed at that time to be too close to the shocking images that were coming of of prisoners of war that were coming out of concentration camps. And it was felt not to be a reconciliation matter, the funding had come through reconciliation money. Later, the sculpture was in a newspaper article. I asked Fen why, and he he said he couldn't remember. But he thought it was probably the London Chronicle, but it might not be. Um, But it was seen by David Stokes, an eminent architect. He contacted Fenwick and he, he asked if he could use it for a convent school in Wimbledon. Fenwick agreed, and the carving was delivered. It wasn't long before it was brought back. The mother superior said it would frighten the girls. Much later, in 1964, at the invitation of Charles Davis, the then editor of Clergy Review, Benning offered this piece of sculpture free of charge to any, any church in the country here would take No replies. I can't imagine, as an artist myself, the depth of rejection that he must have felt. No replies. It was eventually purchased uh, by St. Peter's Gerald in the 70s, in today. The Risen Christ, 1974 beach, 15 foot, huge. If it carved garden gnomes, we wouldn't be in this position. having to store all of these things, but no. Anyway, so it was initially carved for um, a commission by Ex-Maggie. It was to celebrate the 1400th anniversary of its foundation. Um, It was conceived to hang above the roof screen in a space of 70 feet. It wasn't to be. Firstly, the proposed patron, Lady Blackett Borg, she died that year. And secondly, the Abbey decided to use the money that they had to buy a Pennsylvania organ instead. But they didn't want it. The late Reverend Harold Saxby, rector of Jarrell at the time, attempted to rescue the situation. Harold was always a bit of a rescuer. He loved Dad's work. He loved the family. He contacted the Dean of Durham Cathedral, Eric Keaton, I think, um, and that resulted in an exhibition in the cathedral in the late 1970s. However, they just went ahead and did it, you know, as he did. Something needs doing. You go and do it. But now, somebody rang the Royal Fine Arts Commission, and they hadn't had permission, and they objected, and they told Felix to re- remove it immediately, forthwith, with the words. So it resided in limbo in Felix's studio for quite a long time, and we, are, you know, the family are very irreverent really about his sculptures. So can imagine this huge piece in the studio, arms down here. And you just think that you are going to get past the tip of its hand. And you like dash into the loo and two <laughs> <laughs> you knees, know, I don't know how many times. The whole family. So what we did in the end was we put two nails in, and we pinned a scarf to <laughs> the And then we gave him a portfolio. So it looked like he had a handbag. And then when my brother had his haircut. Got a ladder and put his hair on the top. Really, you know, I mean they are amazing pieces and we shouldn't be doing it. But that's what you do as a family, you know. Um, especially when you get knocked out by the thing. Um, anyway, Alex Colton, um, an architect, suggested that he approach English Heritage Society the Sculpture in Brickburn. I and mean, my mum really had, had a different thing, I think, you know, we did all did have brains on our heads. Um, They agreed and the Mitten Christ was installed there on alone, for the remaining years of the 20th century. In 2004, Fennec was invited to hold a retrospective exhibition in Durham Cathedral as part of a national art exhibition um, entitled Presence, and it was sponsored by Bible Alliance if I remember correctly. And it was to celebrate the 150th anniversary of their foundation. Um, And he couldn't resist the idea of the Christ coming home to Durham, where he'd been kicked out. But again, it wasn't to stay there when the exhibition finished. Where were we going to take it? Brickville wouldn't have it back now. So, it left Durham, the St. Peter's at Longueuermouth. But again, the mission hadn't been solved. It wasn't to be. As it's so large, and as I have to say, my mother wouldn't have it back in the house, we couldn't find anywhere to keep it, other than lying it on the floor in an undertaker's for three years. It was in Washington. Can you imagine the rejection they had? In October 2007, the, the church of St. Michael and All the Angels in Orbeen Spring kindly offered it a new horn. On long term loan. This will be part of the deed of gift that we are doing at the moment um, to Durham University. <laughs> Honestly, you can't get the husbands, can you? <laughs> <clears throat> Let's start off, I guess we 1986 oak and bronze. Bronze hands, bronze head. It's sitting in the cathedral in the Chapel of the Nine Waters. It was actually part of the, an exhibition of Fennec's work somewhere at the end, something in like 1900 I can't remember exactly when it was. Sometime at the end of the last century. When the exhibition was taken down, the sarcophagus was left behind. As we had no to store it, we actually didn't mind, so we couldn't say anything. We just hoped nobody would notice. The studio was so full and undoubtedly really didn't have anywhere anywhere to carve them. So we just kept shroom. Eventually, though, some of the hierarchy realised it was still there and we knew they would just find it sooner or later. And many letters came asking us to remove it. We did try, in all honesty, we did try to remove it, but we needed help from the workmen. And the workmen in the cathedral refused. They offered excuse after excuse as to why they couldn't move it. They wanted to keep it where it was in the chapel of the nine altars. They succeeded. And it was eventually bought by the cathedral for a tiny sum a few years ago. But it still hasn't been moved from its original place. And I do feel that it is at home there in that place. Good bit of farm. This is the cupboard that Paul was talking about. This is the uh, wood carving, not the bronze caster wood carving. So some of you may remember when that was in the cloisters, around 84 to 91. It was carved from one of the great elms that grew out by the side of the path outside of the main entrance to the cathedral. It's a long story, you know, and that's another lecture. The cloisters, however, provided a very, very dark, damp. Sanctuary. Rarely was there enough sun to dry out the sculpture after heavy rainstorms. The wood was rotten and ideally, well, absolutely, it, had, it needed to be treated and ideally it needed to be moved inside out of the way of the elements. We were refused. There was no place for Cuthbert in his own cathedral, where his tomb is. They wouldn't have it anywhere else. And you know, more than that, we were refused access to even treat it, have all of the letters. It was ours, didn't belong to them. It wasn't subject to any lease agreement anywhere. My dad doesn't do lease agreements. Fennec was actually told in writing that that is the nature of the word to rot and it should be the nature of the sculptor to allow that to happen. This great piece of art. I don't think that that person would apply the same logic to his roof. (laughs) Eventually we we did remove it um, and brought it back to the studio where the bottom wood was removed and the sculpture treated with a preservative. Um, Ten years ensued, seeking funding, Putting applications in, putting bids in, always being rejected, just didn't happen. Meanwhile, again, I found a home um, on loan to uh, English Heritage in Brighburn Priory, which is also really dark and damp, but it was better than nothing. The bronze cast was eventually commissioned by Northern Rock, and the wood carving here in Derring is gifted to St. Mary Le Bonham Heritage Centre, we you know, we're not sure what's happening with the heritage centre just now. So we're not sure what's gonna to happen to it. But that's, again that's another subject. Okay. Peter, Pietre in the Cloisters. I don't know whether you've seen this photograph before. Pietre in the Cloisters. Fennec started this in about nineteen seventy four and finished in about nineteen eighty one. He struggled massively. They often left, left him mentally because of the exhausted. He may never break down. He wrestled with the word and wrestled with himself. He took a sabbatical from his job in order to complete it. His first exhibition was in Newcastle Polytechnic, where he was under sculpture. The reaction from many of his colleagues was quite devastating. Too Christian, too Catholic, too much out of mainstream art rubbish, crap. <coughs> His trouble was rubbish by those whose opinions he held very dear. He came to the cloisters uh, don't Cathedral in the early 80s, I forget the year. Again, that dark, dismal place, and, and without the sun to dry out the wood, it um, started to deteriorate. Sometime in the spring of 1984, there was a freak wind and it swirled, and it was really ferocious. It swirled around the places, and it caused damage to the mother figure. She kind of crashed to the ground. Um, I remember rushing up to the, ch- to the cathedral with my children, we had buckets. My dad was inspecting the damage and we were picking up pipistrelle bats because all of the pipistrelles had been killed. It was, it was really sad. The cathedral, we asked if we could go indoors, they said no. Uh, they wouldn't accept it in any of the situation. It was outside or nowhere. And we couldn't do that. It was what. So we took it to York Minster at our expense, where it was located in the south transect. We all know the story that's coming out, don't we? 6th of July 1984, David Jenkins was consecrated as Bishop of Durham in York Minster, it was a controversial appointment, as you will probably know. <clears throat> 9th of July, just a few days later, York Minster was hit by a bolt of lightning. So we had a brief storm in during the cathedral and we had the bolt of lightning. And it destroyed the roof in the south transept. Well, in many circles, this was deemed to be an act of God against J- David Jenkins being appointed as bishop. We were wondering about the Pieta whether it was an act of God against the theater. Uh, this was the only good news fact this A great big screen behind it, uh, a cast iron screen deflected every piece of wood as it fell from the roof. You know, you would think that they would see it as a miraculous escape rather than a bad omen. So anyway, while the self-transcept was being repaired, the sculpture was squashed into a corner, just inside the gate where the collections and treasures were. It was behind the gate, which meant that if someone needed to engage with it, they had to pay And that is always against Fennec's ethos. We asked it to be moved to a more contemplative place, but that was refused, and we were told to remove it completely, forthwith, again. Well, we didn't get round to it straight away. Um, we were hoping that they would kind of change the minds. And we didn't have anywhere to put it. But eventually we hired a removal van. Uh, but when we got there, we found that it disappeared. It was nowhere. Nobody knew where it had gone, nowhere in sight. We had to trace <coughs> the many, many phone calls, talking to people, trying to find out what had happened to this vulture. We found it. In pieces, in an army barracks, in a shed. The gun hiring transporter came and hauled down to the studio, bashed, battered, cracked, reamed with the lead, the molten lead, and it was the bird. That all adds to the theme. Dad wasn't bothered about that. He, it is the theme of crucifixion and pity, and yes, cracked, the mother, the emotion, it all adds to it. The fact that the legs were burned and reamed with lead added, it added something that he could never have given it. He hadn't thought of it. What he was upset about was that it had been put into pieces, moved by somebody else, and just chucked into the machete. So, When we put it back together, we took it to Brigham Priory, again, to English Heritage. And, you know, I know I keep saying it, but again, it was another very dark, cold, damp place. We used to visit often, and it was like it froze your bones. And it was worse than the cloisters because there was no sun at all. No warmth, and the wood became really, really sick. Two or three times a year we used to go up, inspect the damage, repair it, and remove the fungus growing out of the bottom of the mother figure, like some strange, lacy pleated garment trailing on the floor. Canon Bill Hall, the then chaplain to the Arts of Durham Cathedral, worked tirelessly in the background for several years to get us into the cathedral, on loan, and it was many years before they bought it for a very reduced sum. The President's retrospective exhibition in 2004 gave Fenwick the opportunity to display it as a deposition, but that is the way that he had conceived it. He, it could only remain there for the length of the ep- exhibition, and was returned to the chapel of the Nine Alters, still alone. <coughs> so, I'd like to read this poem written by my mother about the sculpture and about the man who created it, from the perspective of his wife, my mother. She wrote this poem in 1984. She's him, you know, when hungry and comforted him when hurt, lived with his rejection and her own. You see the beauty, you experience the love, but their story is almost the exact opposite. presence holds the night. In the morning light, echoing steps and voices chink the stillness of the stone. She greets them with peace. They pause to take in her being, feeding on her motherhood, drinking in the spirit born of pain, feeling the inevitability of reality and the wonder and mystery of life and death. Her serenity gives them hope. And they are renewed, and awareness of who they are, and maybe why, is awakened. The love from this universal mother, freed from the tree, flows through her fingers. Shiny, polished, hands on hands, all take a blessing, and remember her presence. Her beauty travels with them to strangers in faraway places. The lifeblood and pain that translated in Frieda was given by someone they don't see. A pawn, like us all, bound in humanity, that huge machine. We feel individual, we dress, we express, we feed ourselves, or so we think. In truth, we feed each other. The unknown hand that freed this much-loved mother cries out for help. But those whom he feeds don't hear him weep. Split and cracked, his soul must heal itself. Wounds caused by rebirth, exclusion, and doubt are deeper than the oak and drying wood, are more searing than the lead that rhymes the sparks that char. The fair is costly. But those who look see not the man giving his life for a mother, a man, a child. Gentle in his life, intent to cause no pain, his own spreads, cutting, gouging, deep source for which there is no balm, but time and understanding, which is slow to grow. And the story of Fennec's work is that understanding has been very slow to grow, but it doesn't mean to say that his work hasn't always been absolutely amazing. Next one, please. Living women, daughters of Jerusalem, do not wait for me, but wait for yourselves and your children. This piece here, you will find in the chapel. It's the last part of a body of work that is thematically about humanity, and it's based on the teachings of the Stations of the Cross. It's both metaphoric and evidential. I say teachings because, you know, we often forget that they are teachings. The teachings have been just. They are a protest. They were relevant then. They were relevant before then and they're relevant now. They echo humanity and injustice wherever it occurs, in our villages, towns and cities and throughout the world. They encompass the loss of freedom in every injustice, whether that is the freedom of thought, action or indeed in life itself. The teaching is not just denominational. It's secular and it illustrates. The human condition. It is protest. The Weeping Women is arguably the most important of Fennec's sculptures. What could be more pertinent in meaning in the event of Syria? The body of work includes uh, Prison of Conscience, University of Northumbria in the Law Department, Let My People Go and raise College during the university, The Journey, Durham City. Pieter and the sarcophagus in Durham Cathedral, Cuthbert of Farm and Gaia in Durham Museum and Heritage Centre. The, the last of this body of work is Cry for Justice, The Scream, The Hostage and The Weeping Woman. They were all to be purchased by the University in stages as they were cast into bronze. Cry for Justice and The Hostage were cast and installed. You yeah, know, wasn't even invited to the open Not invited. He did attend. He attended in the background where he hovered. He experienced chest pains and an ambulance was called. He spent several nights in hospital with a suspected heart attack. He's had angina ever since. We were then given the go-ahead to cast the Weeping Women. On his return from the foundry, I spoke with my contact, who shall be nameless, just at this moment. His it was ready. He said these words, the tone forever etched in my mind. Don't you think your father has had enough money from the university? And then came that awful night that I had to go to Bull Cottage and tell him that my dad had to pay £65,000 to the foundry. I picked him up off the floor. Their savings blown. The bronze was at the studio and we struggled to sell it. I pleaded with the university to avail. I tried to get a circle of sisters together to raise their awareness but to avail. Female clergy refused and I couldn't quite grasp that. I still can't. I travelled to London see Trudy Styler. She had her art dealer with her. We were given half an hour. It was like pitching in the dragon's den, which I'd never gone. And the art dealer suggested that Newcastle Football Club might be interested. I was thinking We walked away. An ex-mayor of Durham, Grenville Holland, tried to get funding from the council. And even though we were only asking the price of the bronze cast, he didn't manage. And I do so thank him for trying, but he didn't manage. Rejection after rejection. You see, the purpose of Panik's work has never actually been a monetary value, but to be given a go-ahead, the go-ahead on so many occasions throughout his life, only to be left without payment and without, and with the problem of waste or the work. These are huge pieces. We we. We try to store it, we lend it, we pay for transport. You know, isn't that rejection enough? This bit, this last bit, was really beyond the pale. To have to pay for a bronze statue, it had been requested. And they didn't even come to the studio to see it. Now, my dad is also at fault here. He is a kind and gentle man. For those of you who know him, he's a very, very kind and gentle Naive man, he takes everything at face value. He's old at school. He doesn't think one needs agreements and contracts, and as far as I'm aware, he had nothing in writing. You see, my dad also, he he has not only gifted himself in actually creating the work, he's partially gifted every piece of work he's ever done. In one instance, the cost of the sculpture was the same price As the invitation cards for the unveiling. And I should say sculptures. There were many sculptures in that church. And they spent the same. They couldn't spend any more. They spent after that the same on the invitation cards. All of this applied work for the church, whatever the denomination, has been about the same price as the plumbing. It's so uncomfortable, isn't it, when you think about how we love and respect art, how we love and respect the man, and yet, we expect the man not to have anything to pay the bills with. It's a very strange... Strict... People say to me, I believe he's an artist, there won't be any money until after he's died. Oh, great. It's actually killing my dad. He's now got angina because of it. <clears throat> Sorry, <laughs> emotional here. Um, The price for the journey, you might be surprised to know, was equivalent to less than the B.A.T. He was even beaten down on price, caught off guard by one of the trustees in South Street, although there were more than sufficient funds. Any bronze copies of his work, he has paid for himself. All supporting work, leaflets, brochures, photographs, presentations, and so on and so forth. I have given free, without expenses. How can I charge my dad, when he's not even getting any money in? Two years ago, we offered the Weeping Women in bronze to the cathedral. Adista. No charge. What could be more relevant? Adista? But now they were refused. They said no, they were having a market in the closest and it would have been the only place it could have gone. There was no other room for it. The market came first, still the closest, you know, after all of these years. This is actually all of this. Can you move on in the next one? It's my dad. It's shaken fun of to the very core. He is no longer the man you know, the man you used to know. He's now got nothing more to say. No voice, no language for this 85-year-old sculptor, my dad. He's walked away. Ironically, I find this really heroic. His most important works, this body of work, They're about protests against injustices, demands for freedom of expression, freedom of life. And now, strangely, and very, very uncomfortably, he has become his own subject matter. The shaping of imagery of any denomination, of his integrity, carved at the expense of family, bearing his vulnerability has shaped my father, he's voiceless now. Usher College gave his greatest greatest body of work a refuge, when no one else would have it, and for that we're hugely grateful. We're now in the process of gifting all of the unsold work to Durham University. His most significant work, including the Bronze of the Weeping Women. He uses the word significant, you know, because it begins with sign. And he thinks that fine could be part of the mystery that we were talking about in the criteria for fine art. while there is a deep sadness that Fennec's work has to be given away rather than sold, we settled in our minds that we're doing the right thing for the work. We appreciate the sensitivity with which John Fussell and his team are working with us to find the best solutions. Fennec's work will not only be kept safe in perpetuity, but will be treasured, we know that. And the accompanying archive will be available for generations to come. Durham University and Usher College will host the story of a great sculptor, and for that, we'll be hugely grateful. The examples that I've given are just a brief outline. You know, I haven't got time to tell you them all. There are many, many, many more rejections spanning the whole career spending a great deal of time with Fenn lately. His pain is deep. Last week, you know, he sat slumped on the couch, and he had, you know those metal tape measures that sung under the I just ones, with a long metal bit. I'm being told I've got a ups while And he said, if I was responsible for protest songs, I'd get royalties every time they were played, Sculpture doesn't work like that, he does it? Lately he's been saying he went wrong dealing with the subject matter. It's hard to persuade him otherwise. When he reflects, he thinks of the rejection, he thinks of the lack of money, the lifelong struggle. He doesn't see how his work impacts on others, for the sculptures are out in the world living their own lives. My parents brought us up to fly, gave us the skills that we needed to do so, and I've done the same with my children. We didn't plan for the time when they did fly, and the lack of involvement and control, not sharing their experiences. It's the same parallel, I'm um, doing no, no. that. Next one, please, Harry. Just go on to the kids. Fennec, so, no, back. Fennec says that he sometimes thinks if he had another life, he carved the joy of life, the dance, the beauty, running. Running like the running girl, running through a beautiful meadow, Not with fear, but with love and pleasure, laughing. He says the laugh is almost like the scream, the open mouth, the sound with joy. He would have counted his pain rather than tapping into deep and dark recesses of his mind to make profound sculptures that he has to let go, either to live its own life or to rot on the riverbank in the garden of Bow Cottage that they had to leave behind. Of course he did carve the occasional joyful pieces, but they don't exist anymore. No one wanted them either. They rotted on the riverbank, as we couldn't get funding. Couldn't get so much of his work gone forever. The case. It's about my father's love for my mother. It rotted, and only the heads were left. And as we were moving from Durham, a place they could no longer afford to be, given the cost of the weeping women, they no longer wished to be either. A place of some acceptance, but more and more rejection. I tried to move one of those heads. It's quite kind of quite to My hand went straight through the middle of it. I'll never forget the pain that I felt. It was a metaphor for the end. My hand had fallen into my dad's rotten head. It is the end. There is nothing more to say. Art is the imitation of the nature in her manner of operation. Gracias.